Welcome to the Color in Cannabis podcast. I'm your host, Taryn Buxton, and today of our first guest, we have Ramon Garcia, a good friend of mine and also an avid activist, a luminary in the cannabis space. I know you've done a lot of work for a lot of brands, and you just put it down for a lot of people. And so, welcome. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm super excited for you to be here. Um, one of the reasons I wanted you as our first guest is I've worked with you for many years in the cannabis industry. I've been seeing you just going around mentoring many brands, helping many brands in the policy fight um, with the city council, state regulators, just always, always in the place where you're trying to affect change. And I'm super honored to have you here. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Um, where does your story begin with activism? How did you get started with all of this? Uh, it's 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 really a lifelong story. Uh, my family, uh, my my father who raised me basically was uh, doing a lot of uh, political political activism in New Mexico, um, helping the natives and and Latinos there uh, get away from drugs and like some of the pitfalls that were happening for for people of color and in a very heavy like racist state at the time. Um, and so he started a school there to to help kind of reconnect a lot of those native and latino youth back to their culture and it, it was done through um, murals and and teaching them their history and art with with art and and like connecting to them there and so uh, crazy stuff happened they ended up killing the sheriffs raided the school they ended up killing an 18 year old girl and and um arrested the other seven kids, said the kids uh, attacked the police first, and um, my dad was, like, the defense, basically, and he was able to pr prove that there was, like, no glass broken on the outside of the building, so if they had shot out first, at least one pane would have smashed outside of the building, and so they had to acquit those seven kids and let them go, and powers that be never liked that and so they threatened my mom and dad and threatened me and my stepbrother and so we ended up taking political asylum from this country and so from that point in time i think i was five six mm -hmm. it was always it was it was a it was actually three it was three to six was like our political leaving but f for the rest of my life until I was late into my 30s there was always charges against my dad and and so we were always kind of moving um, and so political activism like seeing that from an educated person and then touching down in Oakland and seeing like during the heart of the war on drugs right after they broke up the Panthers and my dad's work with La Raza and American Indian Movement kind of influenced my whole life so I, I you can't be blind to it after that like you see everything different and so it becomes part of your everyday life absolutely absolutely um i know you've talked a lot about your past and the fact that you guys moved around and lived in different places different countries and how that impacted your worldview and you really kind of brought that to cannabis can you tell me a little bit about some of the places that you lived and how that impacted your vision of the world I think the biggest was when we first took political asylum from this country in in like 73 we were taking political asylum in algeria at the time northern africa um eldridge cleaver from the panthers had just taken political asylum there mm -hmm. there's a lot of political unrest at the time and um it was a very unique experience like you, you know on the 
my college thesis was that every high school student before they graduate from high school should have to go like live three three months in in a third world country or somewhere else to like really gain perspective of what the opportunities are that and access is that we have here in this country um and so it was it crafted like how i related to things so we France, Southern, you know, Central America, South America, and then, like, you know, Canada, been kind of all over the place. You guys were on the road, <laughs> for real, for real. Yeah. What, um, so how did that feed into you actually getting into the cannabis industry itself? Well, like, from, this plant was always taught to me as medicine. Like, you know, I was raised a real native kind of perspective way, counterculture like activists you know it's all about um, reconnecting deeply with those things that were ours before colonization so from our language to our ceremony our you know how we live our connection to the land getting our land back like all those things was was part of who we are as people as native people and so this plant was like one of many medicines that Native folks for 500 years plus on this continent have been fighting for the right to use freely even before prohibition. Um, and so it, it kind of always was around. My, my dad and mom kind of grew it when we were younger, especially for medicine, and spent time up in, in uh, Mendocino. And, you know, obviously it was always a supplemental income for us to be able to survive kind of capitalism in America um, so it's always been around but it was it was a different perspective for me because it wasn't taught to me like a drug at first it was taught to me as medicine mm -hmm. I kind of really skipped what you're actually doing now which is probably a good place to begin because I, I work with you with in the equity trade network or through the equity trade network and so you want to give people a little bit of explanation of what the equity trade network is equity trade network is is first and foremost it's a it's a certification so the equity trade certification is a federal certification mark that identifies um, businesses that are 50 or more percent owner by somebody who's been through a local city county or state um, social equity program so right now the only social equity program that really exists is is what we created here in Oakland and San Francisco and on the state level is the first social equity program in cannabis. So as it relates, it was a way when we created the social equity language first was about identifying, you know, people that were damaged by policies like the war on drugs, redlining, those things because they use this plant as a tool to bridge our civil rights, mm -hmm. right? For search and seizure, which led to all kinds of other things. So in the past 50 years, like just getting them to understand that their policies created undue damage and now having to create policies that kind of try to correct that damage, right? And so that's what the social equity program was about or equity. Um, for those that don't know, like the difference between equality and equity. Yeah, please, let's talk about that. Equality just, you know, identifies that everybody can have equal access, right? So example of that is like we all have equal access to public high school or we all have, can, can have equal access to, um, to college, right? Whatever level that is. Equity identifies that there are different challenges for different people to actually access that equality. So 
the example that I give to some folks is like the kid that has to wake up at five in the morning, take three buses just to get to that high school, may not have had breakfast, might be living in an abusive situation, uh, traumatic, has PTSD because they're living in poor neighborhoods and they see violence every day. When they get to school, they don't have the same opportunity. They're not in the same like position to be able to take the most advantage of that as like the kid whose parent has time to tutor them, yeah. makes them breakfast in the morning, drops them off at school 15 minutes before school. Like they're not in the same position. So equity identifies that we all have different challenges in order to reach equality. Mm -hmm. And then let's set up systems that make sure that things really are equal. Let's figure out what resources we can provide to people to make it so they we all come to that at the same level. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how, how long has the Equity Trade Network been around? It started, the conversations really started in, in like 2016 when I was working with the Cow Growers Association to, they were, to make sure that social equity and legacy was, was a conversation on the state level when they were like actually making Prop 64 and the rules and just making sure that that was in the foundation. And so it was always a a thought that okay once we get licenses right we've been doing this forever right in the way that it existed on the illicit market and then with prop 215 the medical market from 96 in california right being able to do business in a collective way mm -hmm. where there was still opportunities for people to get into this but knowing that now this is going to be a regulated space yes. and when capitalism takes over, it's about access. So if you have access to legal and consulting and capital and all these things, yeah, there's a great opportunity for the rest of us, especially when you're talking about people impacted by, you know, the war on drugs. So we didn't, we might not have graduated from high school. We might not have those college friends that are lawyers or accountants. We have to pay for everything. We might not even have the tools or skill sets to know how to really run a legal business right yeah we've been out here trapping and making money we understand how to make money and in those things but in terms of the legal regulated space having to get permits and all these things like that those are tool sets that we don't have mm -hmm. and so the equity trade network was like a forethought of like okay we're gonna have these licenses but licenses worth nothing if we don't know where we're going to source our product how are we going to create those products like if we're always behind if if you have a big corporate company that can sit there and and pay less for their packaging and their product source and you know their marketing and all those their legal and all those things when their product comes out there we're already at a disadvantage because we're paying more our margins are less so let's find out a way that all of us can become vertically integrated and work in that cooperative way yes. without like, without it being one big company capitalized. And, you know, like, so it was a way for us to come together and support each other. Because this plant touches from seed to sale, like every piece of that, that's the way it was in the illicit. You had the growers, you had the, the middlemen that were getting points and then you had the the people that were selling it and then you had the consumers right and so like just kind of recreating that within this legal sense right 
us connecting some of those legacy cultivators to to the equity brands. Now you have a source of flour, yes. like meet us where we are. Now we have a distributor. We have somebody who can do packaging. Like let's link up and support each other's success. Knew that that was going to be a need. So it was a it was a thought way back in 2016, but never was able to like really get a lot of support or capitalization for it. And so officially, like we finally came together um, three years ago and like creating the certification mark. Um, and, and, you know, Morris from SF Roots and Sync SF, some of those were the first to wear it. Regardless, we were just trying to prove, like, just prove it, yeah. right? We never thought that we would, like, you actually get a federal certification mark, like, like fair trade. It was like, we need a way for retailers to identify our products. But more importantly, we need a way for consumers, our consumers, to know, hey, you're investing in a somebody who's been impacted, somebody that looks like you, somebody who's been through the same things that you have if you've lived in any of these impacted communities that that were targeted by the war on drugs, and, like, be able to vote with our dollar, right? Like, let's support those companies that are supporting our communities, that are hiring in our communities, people like us that are committed to, like, giving back to to community groups that are actually spending money at your local corner store, your gas station or local shirt maker or whatever it might be. Like it was like reconnecting that, that community kind of the tribal systems where we had, mm -hmm. but doing it in, in this new corporate environment. Yeah. I think one of the things I like the most about working with the equity trade network is the distro arm of it, being able to be at a distribution center where all the brands represented are black and brown brands. And so when we are in that space, when you, we do, I come to distro and I come talk to all the different business owners that are there. We all have a shared experience. It's really nice. And then just pulling our resources together. I think again, that's one of the greatest values of the equity trade network is I, as a small business owner, I have open extracts, just trying to get each small step done, whether it be finding the, the root product to make our extracts, dealing with packaging, dealing with labeling, dealing, dealing with marketing assets, getting help for actually doing demos and work in the field. By myself, it's just expensive, can't really do it on my own, <laughs> and can't really just afford to hire out another company to do it all for me like a lot of the bigger brands right. can. So to have a network where somebody in the network is really good at digital media, someone else is really good at in-store demos, someone else loves designing packaging, and be able to kind of work with the crew where we can all share our resources, share what we know and what we love with one another so we can all kind of afford to kind of be in this space and be successful. I think that's really critical. And then just the bonding that happens of being in that space with so many other people that are struggling. That's why I love it coming by the distro and spend more time there than I probably should. It's just the experience of being around so many other people that are sharing the same fight. It really, really feels good. It's inspiring to be in there. Yeah. Well, you know, I've worked in corporate America for a long part of my life, and, and you have to wear those masks. You have to, somebody said it earlier, you have to code switch. You yeah. have to be able to speak these different languages. But you never really feel comfortable. Yeah. Like, I, I was frustrated that professional meant that I needed to have clean cut. I can't have my dreads. Uh, like, I needed to be in a shirt and tie for me to be, like, considered a professional. Yeah. But... Like, here I am actually doing the work, so I am a professional, yes. but, like, I'm not considered that way unless I fit in. Mm -hmm. Well, like, for me, that always frustrated me, and, and so it was about creating that environment, that exact environment that you were just talking about, where, where it's a safe space for us to come as we are and be who we are and, like, be able to work through that, kind of bucking the way things are, and 
like it's a more comfortable environment. When I was working in that corporate environment where I had to be somebody else, I had to be Ramon Garcia. It it was like it was soul crushing every day. Yeah. Like you, Pac, Tupac talked about it. Like when he was in jail, I think they asked a question of him. Like, how do you, you know, like can you make music in jail? Like, are you able to write? And he was like, no. Because the environment that you're in was so, like, prohibitive and so oppressive that it doesn't, you're reacting all the time in this angry way or frustrating way, and it doesn't give you the space to actually create, yeah. to be who you are. And so a lot of that Equity Trade Network was about that. It was about creating a space that we could feel safe, that we can understand that we're going to treat each other with respect. We all have differences, but but we're going to treat each other with respect. We're going to do good business with each other. We're going to meet each other where we are and not just be, like, judgmental or whatever. Oh, he said this. I'm canceling. I don't want to. No, like, if you're that way about business, it can be stifling or it can help you, right? In this case, we all agree that we're going to do this good business, so it can't do anything but support. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, given all what we're dealing with in the cannabis industry right now, like what do you think of the state of the legal industry in California? State of it's, it's different. Like I, I kind of went into this from an activist perspective, Mm -hmm. right. And, and for those that don't have, don't have that perspective, I'm entitled with that perspective because I had a mother and father that were activists, well-educated, but living in East Oakland during the war on drugs and all these different ghettos. And like all my friends around me not having those tool sets. So I'm entitled in that, in that respect, but it gave me like a different perspective on everything. My expectation, my dad told me once when I was young and I was frustrated about racism, why is the world like this? And he was like, you basically have two choices. You're this skin color, you're brown, and so things are going to be harder for you than your white boyfriend. Like, it's just the way it is, right? It's not right, but it's the way it is. So either you can just say, fuck it, it's not right, quit, go out there, deal drugs, give up, do whatever you want, like, whatever, just give up. Or... You could know that this is the way it is. And if you know this is the way it is, then you already know what's coming. You're already three steps ahead because you know how they're going to react. Because the colonized way has not changed in thousands of years. Like, we know what their SOPs are. And so we know how it's going to react. So when it comes to this industry, when Prop 64 was being announced already knew what it was it wasn't about legalizing it wasn't about taxes it wasn't about helping patients get medicine it was about the fact that for 80 plus years california has been providing 80 percent of the illicit weed across the nation and if you don't think you know 48 other states have been trying to crack down on that and like giving california shit like hey you need to stop this then you're not you're not like paying attention to how the things work. So my expectation was this was always about limiting access and about the recriminalization in a way of this because now instead of going to jail, 
they're going to put you in debtor's prison. Yeah. It's worse. Like, you owe the state of California $250,000 or something because the health department, the fire department, yeah. and fish and wildlife, and everybody has came in. You can't even get rid of it. Like, they're going to be collect, collecting your tax money, they're yeah. gonna, your wages. Like, you can't get loans, all these things, like putting liens on your property. It was a deterrent more than every, anything else. And so... My expectation was that it was going to be a shit show. Mm-hmm. It's unlike like Oregon or Washington or Colorado that may have you know started before us. They were starting f- something from scratch. Mm-hmm. In California, like I said, we've been doing this shit for eighty years yeah. with the cops, the sheriffs, like <laughs> the feds, everybody watching us trying to crack down, and so like you're going to end up destroying something that exists in order to recreate it into something else. So my expectation was exactly that. Like big corporate dollars are going to come in. They're going to try to flood the market. Um, We're not going to have access to capital. We're going to have limited access to property and resources and all these things. And we're going to be asked to try to compete on that level. So if we don't link up and help each other, then we're done. And that's not even the worst of it. Right. Like all the companies like Glasshouse thinks they're big. Yeah. Wait till Marlboro and, yeah. and Budweiser come in and do some like the real big boys. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's important for folks who aren't familiar with it or is understanding the distinction, particularly in California, about the medical marijuana market and then the new legal rec market that we talk about. So uh, previous to 2016, uh, 2016, we had Prop 215, which was the, the laws that allowed for medical cannabis or medical marijuana to be, to be used, to be grown, to be consumed, to be sold. And it was a very, very loose legal framework. You just had to have a medical recommendation. It allowed you to go to the stores to buy it. It allowed you to have a couple plants and grow it. And it, was just, it allowed this small industry to kind of grow and actually become a big business or a big in, bigger industry, even though we didn't have a lot of corporate funding and all that. It's just because... Back then, a lot of the corporate money didn't want to come into cannabis. It wasn't federally legal yet. We didn't have access to banks. And so medical, even though people were making money in the medical system, it wasn't a safe environment for big business to come in. But then when Prop 64 happened around in 2016, they created more of a strict legal framework for everything that allowed big business to feel comfortable coming in. But it also created all kinds of taxes and layers of bureaucracy and just the cost of doing business skyrocketed. You can no longer have a mom and pop out of your backyard growing a couple little plants and having a business. Now you have to have a licensed facility. Everything has to, has to go through a distro, which is stacking, stacking points on top of it. And so at every step of the way, it became more and more expensive to do business. So transitioning from Prop 215, the medical cannabis, to Prop 64 has just turned it from something where the small person can actually succeed and thrive to something where you really need a really big business to be able to do anything and so when we're talking about the difference in recreational or legal weed now we're talking about under prop 64 with the new regulations so it's really it's changed the face of the market and and the, the biggest part of it was was the elimination of cooperative language because that's how everything existed before technically you can like make a profit supposedly if you may you know you can pay your bills your employees all those things but but if you made more than that it was supposed to go to a nonprofit. it was supposed to be donated <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't happening, but yeah. but that's the way it was. But the biggest part of that was that allowed me as a cultivator basically to be able to provide medicine for five, ten different patients. Yeah. And so I could grow a hundred plants, I could give them product, and that was like 
lot of people weren't doing that, but we were actually giving product to patients. We understood that this was a need. It was a medical need. And so we were giving product, whatever else we sold to the, to the dispensaries, that was us recovering our costs for growing and being able to do it again and paying our taxes and doing it again next year. And, and so that allowed for us to work together. Yes. That allowed a lot more flexibility when they, took that cooperative language out of it. Now it's, you have to have an LLC or a corporation and now you're limited. And especially if you're an equity applicant, you have to maintain 49 to 51% of your business. And so now if you're trying to raise Raise capital, like you're limited, you're totally completely hamstrung and limited. And then it wasn't like the state or any of the local um, localities came up with like resources, right? for them to do that. And so, I mean, like you, back to your original question, it was like, it was meant, it was designed this way. Like America was designed this way for after the civil rights movement. And they knew they can't discriminate against race, religion, sex, like all those things. The thought process amongst those powers would be was how do we do the same things? Okay. If we limit access to, education that limits access to opportunity right if we limit access to to you purchasing product um, property through redlining that that limits access to general generational generational wealth wealth, which limits your opportunity right if we like you only have access to public schools well you're not getting into harvard most likely and so unless you have a degree from these prestigious schools, then you're only going to make this amount of money. And so it was like all these structures, systemic structures put in place for us to have a harder time accessing opportunity. Absolutely. And and thinking about our cultural backgrounds, what, what do you think that from where you grew up and from your family, what are some of your unique cultural strengths that have aided you in being in the cannabis market right now? Like what from your background, either from your family, ethnic, or just the culturally from your family kind of set you up for success in this space? I think it's, it's more the experience in history. It's the cultural perspective. Like I said, I was taught it was medicine. So for me, it wasn't just about getting high. It was, like being able to look at this plant and and all of its uses right from tinctures to topicals to concentrates and edibles like our cultures i'm taino from puerto rico and and black and my mom's um russian jew from new york and my stepfather who raised me was native american and so like being able to get multiple different cultural cultural perspectives before colonization of how we use this plant kind of was a lot more wholesome. It was like, this was, it was like a way for us to practice our ceremony and get different perspective for, for me, it was always spiritually and physically healing. So that allowed me to have a different relationship with the plant than just somebody who might've just been like raised in East Oakland and, they were just grabbing packs and selling for double and doubling it up, right? They know the plant from the consumer and the sales perspective, but I know the plant from a cultivating perspective, from like the soil and and like the makeup, and and so you you have a deeper connection with that. Absolutely. Do you think there was um, 
barriers, your cultural barriers, do you think that because of your culture, was there, was there any way that made this difficult to get into? I mean, I think for right. a lot of people, it's the war on drugs influenced their family to be really strict about weed, but it sounds like your family was kind of already invested in the plant, so there might not have been that, but were there other barriers that you faced because of culture? Yeah, I mean, the barriers are the barriers that they set up, you know, after the Civil Rights Movement. Like, for me, I was accepted to Cal Berkeley, but my parents didn't have money like that to be able to put in there. I got scholarships and grants, but not enough. So, like, it was always a compromise. Like, there was not that startup ability. Everything I had to make, I had to make from scratch because my parents didn't really have a lot. Absolutely. Right? And so... From that respect, like a lot of people can rely on their family or or you know like have an uncle who's a lawyer. Hey, can you look at this contract? Make sure it's right. No, I I knew that I was gonna have to pay for everything myself and absolutely I was gonna have to do it myself. And so from that perspective, like here we are, second generation cultivators, like understanding the plant from this perspective. But you saw it when like. Canada and and those investors started coming in, they would invest in the young white dude that just graduated from Davis's ag program and think that they could build a company off of that as opposed to like the small farmer that has been growing for two generations made all the mistakes. And so from that perspective, just culturally, we're not in those VC capital circles. We're not in these circles that have um, people that we can rely on for technical assistance. So I already knew from the beginning, this is going to be like, I'm going to have to come up with everything. And I've watched like people in the same building get invested a hundred, $200 million. (laughs) And I can't even get somebody to loan me 10 grand. And then they're gone in a year. They're done. (laughs) They're done. And we're still here like five, six years later, but that's the entitlement of those folks that have access, yeah. right? That's the pump and dump. That's the, oh, they can go back to their uncle. And, hey, can I work for your company? And they can get a, They'll you know, right. a, they're going to be all right. Yeah. <laughs> what, uh, what do you think? I mean, I think we're talking about them now. But for you, from your perspective, what is the hardest part of being successful in legal cannabis in California? Um, the hardest part is, I think, you know, it's breaking that barrier, Um the hardest part is the taxes, yeah. right? That I mean, just straight up, it's it's we are completely overregulated, and and you know we don't have access to banking, we don't have access to loans. Here, we were essential businesses the last five years through COVID, like some of the only businesses actually paying taxes, yeah. but. We had no access to PVP loans. We had no access to even like like sixty percent of the tax money is going to police no. to enforcement, right? And and so while they're talking about not having budgets, sixty percent of our tax money and going towards yeah. is going directly towards enforcement. And so but yet we can't, you know, we've been robbed, we've been smashed in, like they're we're still considered like outcast yeah. or or like criminals, yeah. even though we're doing a legal business. And here we are trying to like be the examples and like show that that this needs to happen. But yet we're being kind of punished yeah. 
for doing that. And we don't have any help from our local, you know, politicians or most of our state politicians. And so it's it's just a constant reactive battle. Of, we have to battle it on the on the policy front mm-hmm. to change shit. And then while we're still battling just just being able to like survive or do a small business in America without capitalization or resources. Yeah. So it's, I guess I like the challenge. I guess I'm just a, I like getting my ass whooped a lot. And <laughs> Sucker for punishment. <laughs> so I guess in that sense, what do you consider the best part of legal cannabis? We know the struggles of it, but what, what do you love about being in this space right now? I think I tell people like the, the f- second year, I think I got a license. And now, mind you, I said I was second generation. So I've been moving packs from Mendocino and Humboldt down to L.A. since I was like 16, 17. And so, like, anybody out there who's actually been part of this, you you, you build up traumatic, like, reactions or or instincts like yeah. you know what i mean like a sheriff gets behind you and everything tightens up and you're like oh is your praying to god like yeah. you know that there's certain areas where you can't stop you have a pee bottle in the car so you don't stop yeah. like you get gas before you don't you know all these little things and so second year i got pulled over coming out of there was a fire in mendocino we needed to move all of our product from our farm in Mendocino out of there so it wouldn't get damaged. And I'm coming out of there, and I get pulled over in my distro van by Sheriff Allman, who's notorious for just, you know, what he's done terrorizing people up and down the freeway and the CHP. And, like, that that clinching happened, <laughs> but I'm like a little bit okay with like, all right, I got all my paperwork. Let me see how this Still, is going to work. Yeah. I know the regs. I'm giving them all this shit. I'm nervous. Yeah. I'm giving them all the paperwork. And at the end of it, he's like, oh, oh, okay, well, you're good to go. And he, he asked me a question. He was like, oh, so so what are you going to do with this? My natural instincts are do with what? What are you talking about? I'm like, fuck that. I don't know. Like, no information. But I just rambled off. I was like, oh, yeah, we're going to make some edibles. Some of the stuff will go in bags. Some will go into pre-rolls. We might, we might do some concentrates. Like, just rambling. You got 700 pounds back there. I'm telling them exactly how much I got. The trip from Mendocino across Lake County, the two and a half hours, I... I don't remember much of it. All I remember was like this humongous weight of 20 years of like clenching come off my, I could still drive with weed in my car and I'm stressed, but I drive in that white distro band. I feel like a superhero. I'm like, they can't stop me. So that was like, that was the healing part in terms of like the industry. There's, I used to never smoke other people's weed. Partly because, you know, I liked what we did better, but but mostly it was because I know what people were spraying their weed with. So, like, the pesticides and the chemicals that, like, the cartel growers, not the small farmers up there, like, they went back there to do things organically and grow their own food and all that stuff, but what everybody else was spraying on it, I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not smoking that. There's some like, scary stuff out there. Like Eagle the 20 and, yeah. Yeah. like, some of those things, like, you think, 
like Roundup is bad. Wait five years <laughs> when they start studying that shit yeah, and seeing yeah. what that is like. And so the fact that everything is tested is amazing. You know, at the very least, it's tested better than your food, than your yeah. lotion, than your shampoo. Like, like if they test went to Safeway and tested. The like apples, <laughs> everything yeah. there, like they tested our wheat. Nobody's eating. Ninety percent of the shit in Safeway would fail. No like, period. And people don't know that. Again, like my my parents were activists, so they yeah. knew that kind of all along. And like my household had to be organic, yeah. no sugars, and all these <laughs> processed foods because they knew the damage that it was doing. And so I think that is the biggest thing. And the other thing is that the impact, mm -hmm. right? So I destroyed my two discs in my back 20-something years ago and was permanently, did permanent nerve damage, permanently disabled. I did 13 years on morphine. That shit almost destroyed everything about my life, my relationship with my wife, my kids, all those things. And, like, I'm not a person that takes pain meds like that, but it was just so bad yeah. that just nothing else would work. Well, Last six, seven years, haven't I don't even take aspirin. I don't take any men. It's a, it's a combination of, of just pain management techniques and topicals and edibles and smoking and, like, all these different things. And so, like, the quality of life impacts that that's going to generate for black and brown communities specifically yeah. because we consume more pharmaceutical drugs than almost any other, like, communities like it is fed to us and and because of the propaganda they're afraid to try natural yeah. like things like instead of taking this pill and having three different side effects and having to take a pill for that and having to like make sure and order your pills every month yeah, and be yeah. at the pharmacy and and then the constipation or the grumpiness or whatever destroying the, the your liver, side your effects kidneys, whatever just destroying your body from the inside out to alleviate some pain they like, can right. just rub something on and make it go away. It's insane. Right. Or they can put a little bit of infused sugar in their tea in the morning yeah. or, you know what I mean, have an edible. Now the the quality of life impacts that that's going to have on our communities and, and like us being human beings again. Like that's the biggest thing that the opioids did. It, I was not me. Yeah. I was not recognizable like for who I am and I couldn't see it when I was in it. Like, I couldn't see any of it, and, and it allowed me to have a different perspective on, like, this can impact our world in a way and, and not even get into, like, the spiritual effects. Yeah. I had a, a guy at one of these events, and he was military. He was raised in Ohio. And, like, I was having a conversation with him, and he was, like, telling me about the impacts of weed on his life. And he said, man, if you had, five years ago, if you had said anything about weed, I would have punched you in the face. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the way he was raised. He was raised that this was just the gateway, the worst, the devil's lettuce, like, the worst shit ever. Don't even talk to me. I'm an American. I'm clean, and I'm sober, and this is what it is. Well, when he came back from the military, he's... PTSD was freaking crazy, and it's good to talk about this today. Um, he said that every time he walked into a hotel room that was over three stories high, his first thought was going out on the balcony and jumping off. And he had a little daughter, and all his friends, and even his wife told him, you need to smoke a joint. And he would have battles, like, to the point where they almost broke up, and 
he couldn't have a relationship with his daughter or nothing. Like it was, this was a pain point in his life. One day he walked into a hotel, sixth floor. First stop, I want to jump out the shit. And his friend was there. He's like, I don't care what you do. Take this joint, go around the corner and just smoke it. He said the second hit that he took off that joint, all the thoughts left his head. And he said he felt embarrassed that he treated his wife and his friends the way he did, objecting to this when he felt what it did for him. Absolutely. But the biggest thing that he told me was that he would have never, ever been able to have a relationship with his daughter the way he does without this plant. And that was the spiritual side. That's what I mean by medicine. When Like peyote, all these things have purpose and reason. The creator put them down here and they have ways of use. And so one of the ways that Native people tell of why using this plant is that, number one, it brings us together in a way that that's, you know, we get past those boundaries of our differences, whether physical or whatever, political or theoretical. Um, but it allows you to leave yourself and see things from a different perspective. Absolutely. Right. And so if you're caught up hitting the wall, hitting the wall, and you can't figure some things out, it allows you to step back, slow down, look at things from different perspectives and get through that. Right. And so that's was one of the medical benefits and that's the spiritual side that people don't really talk to that allowed him to connect with his daughter. So now like people are like, Oh, that's a great thing for him and his daughter. But now think about the like long impacts. If she didn't have her dad in her life, think about her relationships with men and how that would impact her kids and, yeah. and going forward. And so they broke that chain that chain was broken with this one little experience. I think it is really important, it, it being Veterans Day, talking about that element of it. I do have um, a lot of friends who are in the service, and when they came back from the service, they're experiencing PTSD, and the VA was quick to give them opioids to deal with a mental health issue. So, and, and that's obviously the worst thing to do. Right. And you string them out on opioids, and then you take them off suddenly after 18 months because right. the rules are you can only have it for so long, and there's no mental health care after that. There's no right. more mental health medication. You're just on the streets looking no for heroin. No step down. And, um, and so many of those friends of mine who are veterans, were they believed what their parents taught them about weed. Weed is a drug. I don't <laughs> want to do drugs. And then they're in the VA getting strung out on something else. And so when they actually, the few that are able, not the few, but those that actually do try and right. are able to get the results from it, it's an amazing transformation to witness. And just seeing how something so natural is able to help them in, with their life is profound. But really just seeing the profound disappointment they've had of being lied to all these years about what's healthy, what's safe, what's going to make you better. And then it's, it's, it's a simple plant they could have been growing in their backyard. They didn't even strung out on all these pills. Right. And so it is really scary to see the lies that people have been told and the beauty of things being more and more legal and more and more open are that more and more people are able to understand that this plant really does have amazing value. Yeah, I mean, think about the impact of that story. Like, it, it just amazed me that, that the dude said as soon as he took a hit off the joint, like, his thoughts of suicide just immediately yeah. went away. And suicide is, I think... Veterans have the highest suicide rate. Yeah, it's 22 a day or something group. outrageous like that. It's, it's ridiculous. And so it's all these little things that are keeping us from being better as human beings. Yeah. Like, like again, going back to that quality of life, instead of dealing with the stress and PTSD and not having 
relationships with with his with their wife and their kids and all these things he's able to build you know something better and be there be present i said when i was on that morphine i was not myself the way i reacted to things who i was i was an angry person i didn't want to leave the house it was like and that impact my kids are still dealing with like in therapy of it. And it was only a certain, you know, three, four year period of time that it was just really got out of pocket. And I wasn't taking it more than my doctor prescribed, but it, it changed who I was. Yes. That's terrible. And that shouldn't be, it shouldn't be like, like, you know, we're seeing the impacts of, of just blind capitalism with the wealth gap and like everything is about money and, and things are not about, us becoming better as a human race like what is better for the human race as a whole not just me personally absolutely absolutely so um i've known you to be an activist for a long time really fighting for people's rights and fighting for what is right for everybody and so who inspired you or who does inspire you but particularly when you're young like who really inspired you to take this on it was always my dad first and foremost didn't understand it when I was younger, why he would spend so much time away and, and other stuff and not with the family and doing these things, but my life was around it, so I kind of accepted it. But really, like, stories like uh, one of the biggest ones early on was, like, reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, right? Like, here, and everybody's like, oh, yeah, he's a great activist and all those things, but what struck me more was the ability to change as a man, right? Because here he was a, a drug dealer, pimp, whatever, went to jail, embraced the nation of Islam, took that far as he could take it, then realized there was more to learn and embraced Mecca and, and true Islam and came back. And, and and his ability to say, I was wrong. Yes. Right? His ability to apologize and, and take accountability mm-hmm. for like his limited perspective as his time and always wanting to learn more yes. and grow more that that was like that was monumental yeah. like that and and I would make that comment and other people that read the autobiography didn't get that but like to see somebody change so drastically yes. <laughs> like their perspective changed their drive changed and how he went all the way into it that was that was you know, impactful people like Bob Marley and uh, I hate to say it, people might disagree, but people like Che Guevara and and real revolutionaries like they're they might not have been able to create what they were intending to create mm-hmm. because the powers be around, but studying their ideas and just the way that we can create a system where everybody has at least the basic needs, mm-hmm. and then if we need to like have capitalism on top of that, then that's great. But everybody should have access to housing and healthcare and food and those basic needs. And here we are in this, one of the most wealthy countries in the world, like can produce all this product. You go up and down California and you see all this food grown and 99.9% of it is to make money. Yeah, We still have people right outside this building, hungry and homeless and all that. And so um, it was just like people that could see that and, and want to change. I would always ask my mom, like, 
coming back from Africa or some of these places like Mexico and, and Nicaragua or places like that where here you had super-ass poor people, right, living off the land, but they wouldn't even know us, and they wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning, heat up whatever food they had, offer us their beds. Like, nobody went hungry. Yeah. They didn't have a lot, but nobody slept on the streets. Nobody went hungry, and then come back here and like people go walk by somebody on the street and be like fuck you get a job yeah yeah in the land of plenty given nothing so what makes you determined because i mean so a lot of the what experiences that you've talked about i think answer that question so you probably have already answered that question uh, but when you think internally like what keeps that fire going in the morning what keeps you like going after this daily what, what keeps you determined i think um ideally it's it's the hopes that that you know, we can create change. I think, you know, it was funny. Tupac said um, we weren't ready to see a black president in one of his lyrics. And it was the truth. And we've seen that. And so, like, I always felt like I was in the wrong era. I should have been in the civil rights era. And I would have been running along Malcolm and them. But then realizing the impact of this plant and, like, the time that we're in, is even more critical right now. It's it's a time of 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 people being fed up with the way things are and with with the abuse. And so, like when my dad passed away, what, what screwed me up more than him just passing away, I had seen a lot of people die around me, and. I tell this story because it it impacted me in more ways. It changed my whole life. Like I seen a lot of people die, and in every one of them, I felt regret and pain. And and then you read like deathbed confessions of like the dude that started Apple, and and like he says, I'll give up seventy percent of my wealth to have back the time with with loved ones that I didn't have chasing that wealth. When my dad passed away, he had a smile on his face and he said, I'm ready to go home. And initially I thought he was saying, you know, from the hospital. But then as I thought about it more, I realized he was ready. There was no regret. There wasn't that pain and fear. Obviously the only regret is like leaving us as family, but that's, but, and then when we had his, like, memorial, I had over 100 people come to me, and it took me about the 10th person before I paid attention because I was kind of dazed. And every one of them said, there was one line that came out, your dad changed my entire life. And I was like, finally, when I realized this came out more than once, I was like, what do you mean? Like, what does that mean? Like, because I've helped people and things change, but what does that mean? No, like they said, basically my life trajectory was going this way. And after I met your dad and with your dad helping me and helping be a mentor to me, this is the way my life went. Mm -hmm. And none of this would have been possible if I hadn't met your dad. That shit fucked me up personally. Because here my whole life I try to be like this real good person, compassionate, like understanding, be different, be like accountable to the person that I'm trying to be and and represent and teach my kids. And I coach and counsel and mentor and like being that person, 
that's different that allows them to see that we could succeed without having to fall to all the like no you don't have to be a gangster you don't have to do all this we can do this other ways there are options i had to be honest with myself and i and and that's what messed me up is that i was realizing like the things that made my dad different was that he treated everybody with respect no matter how they treated him and how he was able to engage like policy and very hateful ass people without losing his temper. Like for me, I'm a tourist and like somebody fuck you, you spit you wet bang. Like I'm I wanna go at them. Yeah. Right. But I never saw that out of him. Mm-hmm. And and so he explained it to me one time is you can't you can't fight fire with fire. You can't fight hate with hate. You have to have fight hate with love. And that doesn't mean that you're standing down or being any weaker. It means that you're saying what you have to say with intention of love and change and, and like, respect. And so he would, he was able to change things because he approached it that way. People were more open to hear what he had to say and less combative because he never reacted and responded. It was all, like, I'm trying to give. He gave more of himself than he asked in return. So, like, him being able to help organize folks and change Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day, like, in Berkeley in the 90s, that wouldn't have happened, right, like, without him being able to ingratiate people on the other side. Mm -hmm. And so that was, like, I realized I wasn't living my life that way. And if I wanted to die... Because that was my biggest thing. I just I just want to die feeling that, like, I helped. Yeah. I changed something, like, doesn't matter how little, like, that I wasn't, like, destructive to people. Mm-hmm. And so I had to start embracing that and just trusting that voice inside of you and being honest to that voice inside of you. Uh, that's, like, what motivates me every day is, like, and why equity trade and why I relate to people the way I I do is like I'm trying to make an impact so when I leave this world like yeah I made mistakes I'm human but people say he at least took accountability and like I want to live leave without regrets I want to leave with a smile and on my face well I think you should be able to do that uh, beyond the fact that I know numerous people in the cannabis industry that you've helped. I know you have a history of coaching, a history of mentoring. We can't go anywhere in Oakland without some youngster running up on you, knowing you from somewhere. And so you've had a tremendous impact on the lives of people around you. So I definitely know know that you've done those things and you continue to do those things. There's a lot more work to do and you'll continue to open up doors for a lot of people. I know I sit there at equity trade network when you're not around and it's not uncommon for people to talk about the fact that their only reason their business is still open is because you cared that you fought to make this shit a reality. So there's a bunch of us who sit around that distro knowing that the only reason that we are still active in illegal cannabis is because of the fight that you've been doing and the work that you've been doing and in the space that you and Nina have created with the Equity Trade Network. And really beyond that, just um, not beyond that, but I often have people come up to me and tell me like how much our company means to them. We've been around for 10 years and people are like, Oh, you've been around for so long. That means, and then they talk about what that means. But I also, every time I hear that, I'm thinking about the people that like helped me to be where I am. Right. So you guys are instrumental and in us still existing and us existing has been instrumental to all the, for all these other people. So just seeing that chain of good, just kind of go down. I mean, there's nobody that's really stayed consistent in this industry. Like it's, it's so, 
so volatile like uh, just talking to folks recently and, and we joke about the shit like you ask oh i've been in this industry for a long time how long you been in this oh i've been here since 2018 2020 yeah. like uh, <laughs> okay like, I was in it before that, and, then, like, if we go yeah. just back to Prop 64, it was, like, 2015, 16, that we were just, like, hitting it hard. But even before that, since the mid-'90s, like, that's what we've been doing. And yeah. so, like, that it's rare. Yes, absolutely. It's rare. And, and it's funny because we just had conversations, and you have people that got pieces of the story, but then when, like, Nina or myself or you were there, too, like with the cow growers and like giving history to some things it they're like oh this makes sense now i only had one piece of the picture or two pieces of the picture like but you have like a litany of people going across the country and and going to other countries claiming that they're the father of the weed industry or like you know like that that they're the professionals in this space when the people like you and me and these brands that people that have legacy, they've been doing it longer than it's been legal. Like they're the real professionals in the space. Like they're the ones still here. We didn't sell out our business or pump and dump it. And we're off to like Uruguay or (laughs) New York or like somewhere else, Thailand to create our brand. No, we're still here in our communities, in our communities, trying to build some stuff for our communities and it's not just about us absolutely so we've kind of danced around it because you, well, you do have the equity trade network but we have sanctuary farms in front of us one of the farms that is one of your part of your family it's a farm that i enjoy a great deal you want to tell the folks a little bit about sanctuary farms sanctuary farms is uh my family farm again like second generation my dad and mom kind of been growing this plant forever but um Improp 215, like I said before, us growing it for for medicine. And then when the conversations came around legalization, for me, it was like, that's what kind of had me jump in even harder. was like going back to my, it's my sister, my brother, my mom, my daughter, myself, like my son even worked there. It's a family farm. Um, But it was either we're going to go all the way legal or we're done. Mm-hmm. It wasn't no in between. We knew that all right, they're gonna let they're gonna legalize this, and we got five years before it's everything has changed. And so, Sanctuary Farms is the legacy of what my dad built. Um, us going, we had to give up our property in New Mexico, and his goal was always to get back property. And it wasn't it wasn't a generational wealth thing. It was more of like. A, a form of protest in one way or another and it was us reconnecting ourselves to our our culture right and so in our cultures we grow our own food we grow on herbs and medicines and it was about us reconnecting back to the land mm-hmm. but the form of protest is the less you rely on those those sources that that oppress you like the less i have to go to amazon to buy my food the less he can just say fuck you to the earth and yeah. and pay his workers 15 dollars an hour with no pee breaks and thank them for putting them in space for 36 seconds or whatever whatever the hell it was like you know just being able to like not exist off of those 
those systems. So it, going back to the land was about us having access to clean food and clean water and those things. And, and then teaching, reconnecting our youth and our kids to like, this is all you really need. Yeah. You don't need to go to a job to get a piece of paper, to go back to the bank, to get another piece of paper, then to go to Safeway to pick up some fucking apples and go back home when like you can actually grow them yeah. off the tree and pick them there. So it was a form of protest and getting back to the land. And so when my parents bought that property in 93, that's exactly what it was. And we all came together and built the house. And so Sanctuary Farms represents like the legacy of that. Um, I grown outdoor, indoor and back outdoor. Um, we're sun grown, like in living soil, like in the ground. We know our microclimates. We're in Nevada County and Mendocino, like understanding our microclimates, our soil, and and the plant itself, like the, the strains. That's when you get the truest representation. Like this plant w was put here by the creator. It grows in the ground under the sun. Like I could give you one of our strains and you could grow it in Oakland. It'll come out different. Even our own strains that we grow in Mendocino and Nevada County, totally different. Absolutely. So, like, that deep understanding of the plant is what allows you to, like, let it express itself the way it truly has. And so one of the things that, you know, my brother-in-law says is, like, grow like we do. And, like, you haven't tried a strain unless Sanctuary grew it. So you might not like wedding cake, but if we grow it, you might like it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, it is, it is extraordinarily good. I, um... Big cannabis fan, obviously, <laughs> been consuming it avidly for over thirty-five years, and um, and Sanctuary Farms is just obviously one of the best farms. Not obviously, but it is one of the best farms out there, at least for me. I um, I know people always talk about indoors better than outdoor, but if you talk to the real growers, they'll really tell you that if you get the creme de la creme of the outdoor, it really just crushes what's happening indoor. You can't replicate the sun, you can't replicate the soil. And there's numerous strains that you guys carry that other brands do grow that I've consumed that aren't anywhere near the way you guys make them. And I don't know how much of it's the love, the soil, the growing practices, like the second generation element of it, but it is really extraordinary. And it's beautiful to see it, not just on shelves, but it's beautiful to see how impossible it is for you to keep it on the shelves. Right. And so as much as I like it, I always show up looking for some and you're like, it's, it's gone. gone. And you have to wait for next harvest. And you're like, what are you talking about? You make it. And so it's a, it is extraordinary. It's a good and a bad problem to have like, at the same time and it's been it's been those last yeah. eight nine years of just like people knew sanctuary farms was before we even had a product out on the shelf because i was sharing it with yeah. folks and, and people understanding it is every every grower says that they're the best grower i said it when i was growing i tore up my back i can't grow no more so i taught my brother everything i knew my brother-in-law and here's a guy that you know, is from Brazil, and his dad taught him just basic cultivation. And my dad was a farmer, and and taught him any everything he knew. And I gave him whatever I knew, and here he's turned it into something that none of us individually could do. And yeah. it is, it's about all of that. It's about I I commonly say it's about listening to the plant. Yeah, and people don't when you sit there. I grew indoor since the late like 80s early 90s i was teaching black and brown folks how to build grow rooms in the mid 90s when none of us were doing that yeah. right and i've grown some really good weed indoor nothing is compared to what we've done out there and so like when you're force feeding the plant 
nutrients instead of this being living soil and the plant takes what it needs it expresses itself totally different yeah. like it's a totally different thing and so then like your body's reaction to that is totally different so if we're thinking about experiences and we're thinking about medicine and those things like do i want my weed to look aesthetically perfect or do i want my weed to give me that like yeah. I need to sleep or I need to be awake and focused or I need some pain medicine. Yeah. Like that's what we do it for. And so like our change back to the land and away from the indoor and like feeding it nutrients and putting soil down in the ground. Like we started feeding our whole property com compost teas, like not just the garden, like it was the whole property like the spray everything and let's get the mycelium networks built up and the plants talking to each other and now they resist like some of the weather or the bugs differently and all those things um it is it's it's a step above the rest and and the eagle represents my dad it's it's him watching over us all the time you know on the farm and luckily they didn't pass that bill where we can't put our nice artwork all the artwork for all of our strains was done by a uh, Brazilian artist that, you know, kind of encapsulated what we wanted to express about it and still keep it cultural and relative. Yeah. Sanctuary Farms is, it's, it's that top 1% of outdoor growers. There's a lot of theoretical stuff that people do because like, yeah, it should be ideal. And then, but when you listen to your microclimate and the soil and the plant, it tells you exactly what it needs. Yeah. And and when you give it to it, all of a sudden it comes out different. Yeah. Well, it was like the Blumicorn, one of your guys' strains last year, won a number one Emerald Cup, top terpenes, the highest terpene content yeah. of all flowers, indoor or outdoors. Yeah. Like super excited to see that, especially as much as I smoke on the Blumicorn. It was nice to get that, uh, that uh, the, I guess, the... Um, Oh God, the word escapes. Accolades. Me. Yeah, yeah. And just being reminded, okay, my taste buds are right. Like I knew something was special and then seeing everyone else agree that it's special too, it really is a wonderful thing to see. And that was the craziest thing because I've been trying to get my brother to enter the Emerald Cup for the last 10 years, but, you know, never really seen like that because I knew our stuff was, was different yeah. than most of the growers. And even the way I knew is because I would share with other growers and other growers would be like, bro, this is totally different. I tell people and joke but i've been selling our weed as indoor weed for the last 15 years and nobody i wouldn't even they'd be oh yeah that's some good indoor yeah sure three thousand dollars thank you and and, <laughs> oh, and the good old days right the good old days but but like it's that attention you know to to all of that and and it's the fact that most social equity and legacy growers were doing it not their motivation wasn't all just for money. It was about providing a good, clean, you know, medicine. valuable medicine yeah. to people in in a very, you know, organic way. And we had, you know, we shared that that the whole plant is counterculture to capitalism. It's, it's why we buck that. But the blue corn was crazy because. Here you have the market dictating, right? So if you just read data, oh, yes, the gelatos and the Skittles and the cookies and all these things that people were were putting out there and, like, you would have 10 different brands with 10 different gelato cuts or yeah. sometimes the same ones, 
And here you had the balloon and corn that was just funky, cheesy, stinky, fruity. Like most indoor, the, the CEO of the test facility called me after we tested it, after the results came out. And he was like, what the hell are you guys doing? Like indoor, traditionally you'll see like three to seven different detectable terpenes, right? Terpene levels between a half a percent and maybe one, one and a half percent terpene content. All of our flour generally ranges from like two and a half to three and a half percent in terpenes with 10 to 15 detectable terpenes. The blunicorn was like five and a half percent <laughs> with 17 detectable terpenes. Why does that matter? Flavor, it, taste, you want that. It's it matters flavor. also because of, like, the impact. Everybody thinks that, you know, the high you get, like, is is based on the only the THC levels. But, like, I've had 17% THC level weed put me on the ground. Yeah. And I've had 30% THC level nothing. not do nothing. Yeah. It's because it's when you understand the plant completely and you understand that your body's chemical reaction is based off of that interaction with the terpenes and the, the cannabinoids, the TAC, CBD, and those things, then of course you're going to have a different reaction when it has more percentage of that. Absolutely. Right. But um, it's funny how quickly people like are learning this. It used to be that we could just sell the East coast sour diesel all day and they would just because it grew a lot, and they were just now they want the latest strain, and so that is another good thing about legalization is like the consumer's education curve has grown, and it's absolutely indoor doesn't have to be top shelf, and and quite quite honestly, once it goes federal, like what people are doing in these microclimates in Humboldt, Nevada County, and Mendocino, and like the products that are coming out of there are going to be of more demand than anything you could do in your local region because it's not the same. Yeah. It's very it's unique climate, very unique climate. So I guess that leads us to what does the future hold? Not just for you, but where do you see the future for cannabis, but also the future for you in legal cannabis in, in general? Um, it really depends on how unified we are. Like, it, it depends on, like, how unified we are. Um, I kind of liken it to kind of um, the craft beer industry, right? Either we create this network that encapsulates what this plan is about and and not allow them to dictate what products make it or don't make it, right? Like, you have, like, retailers dictating the market instead of consumers yeah. dictating the market, Right where an example of that is like CBD, high CBD products, right? Retailers, oh, we can't sell that. So growers stop growing high CBD flour because they can't sell it. And and so manufacturers stop making CBD topicals. And now you have an inferior product on the market or no product on the market for people with medicine. And so it's it's... I'm, my hope is that we can get enough of this information out to enough of our consumers, like to enough of our community for them to make that value assessment with their with their money, that they're not just buying the cheapest, that they're actually 
you know, supporting those businesses that help support their community and that, like, quite literally, we've protested, we've burned shit down, George Floyd, like, but they're still killing, police are still killing black folks on the street. Nothing has changed. And until we, like, threaten their pockets, their God, their money, until we stop investing in those businesses and, and those systems that are not reinvesting in our community, like, that's what's going to change it. And the, the youth really want it. They want a different way. They, they don't want to work a nine five for 30 years and pay a mortgage and then maybe enjoy their life when they're 60. No, they want to enjoy it now. And so they're looking for different tools and different ways to actually impact their lives that way. And so my hope is that we kind of really see as a community and as a world, like how this can impact us and, and, also be able to make money with it and not get out taxed and watch our kids like take this and and make it into something else or it just be a piece of that generational wealth whether it's a clothing brand or food or whatever like this is a tool it's a vessel to be able to add to whatever businesses or generational wealth we're trying to do and then you know like the health impacts for me are always up front and foremost. Like let's get people out of jail for minor weed convictions. Like there's no reason why anybody should be doing 20, 30, 40 life for selling weed. Yeah. That's insane. Like if they shot somebody in the head, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Right. But like selling weed, let's, let's, let's get rid of that and let's help our elders and all the people that, that have like, um, serious medical conditions let's let's get people you know the medicine they need and then i think like what bob really proved with this is like the plant is universal like music and like anything else we can be from so many different backgrounds and not even speak the same language but we can connect with some medicine and 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 be connected hopefully it it's it's probably going to get worse before it gets better but hopefully it's like covid and all the rest of this was a wake-up call that we have to be active in the change that we want to see absolutely can't just sit back and comment on shit like we actually have to get up and get busy get busy (laughs) all right excellent thank you so much ramon for your time excellent having you here um we are going to head over to distro after this and uh look at some of the other products and sample a few of the products and go to go down that road but super excited to have you here in the studio today thank you so much for your time no i appreciate you for for putting this platform i i mean like honestly i've said it before we we have a lot of people that are claiming to be professionals in the space and not enough people that represent the actual like history of this and who've been doing it and if you just looked from the outside you would think that just just you know young white men like made this whole industry when we know that there's been a lot of people of color that have suffered and sacrificed for this and and so we need to make sure that that that's represented in a real cultural way so i appreciate that opportunity absolutely no i'm very excited about this i've I've always been 
blown away by how many of us are actually in the business, but people don't recognize it. And you deal with customers, you deal with all these people coming into the shops, and you're like, where are we on these shelves? And you're like, a bunch of us are on these shelves, we just don't know it. So we just want to let people know that we're here, we're out here, we've been doing good work for a long time. And just put some shine on some folks that deserve it, and you so certainly deserve it. So thank you very much for being here, brother. Appreciate you. Thank you. Appreciate y'all. Hell yeah. <laughs>